Okay, so I, I think we've at least come to an agreement on some things. I, I don't feel like I disagree with you, and I, I think you disagree with me on the fine point where I call a specific behavior shitty. So would you like to uh, go and talk about your uh, the plank that you got added uh, to the, what is it, the LP Nevada? Is that something you're interested in if going you, over? Sure. Do you think it's okay to do two things in one? That's okay with me? Oh, my viewers are used to it. <laughs> Let's do I, it. I thought this was a cool topic. Um, would you like me to read it? And then maybe we can talk through uh, how it came to be and why and, and the challenges behind formulating <clears throat> language like this? Or do you want to read uh, it? I would read you, the whole post. Uh, let, me, let me just explain what happened and maybe you can um, interject when, 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 you need me to, when you need to clarify something. Cool. Um, so basically, I was at the Reno um, Libertarian Party convention in May when the Mises caucus took over and um, also got some changes made to the platform. And I was involved with that. And um, I was asked to help clarify or to, to write a, a, a plank on aggression and property rights, which did not exist in there. It was sort of like implied, like aggression was mentioned a couple of times, but it was never defined. Property rights are never clearly defined. So I wrote one and it was put in there. It's now it's in, it's in 2.1. And uh, I wrote it in a particular way with, with input from some other people on the Mises Caucus and uh, some feedback and went through several iterations. And um, yeah, if you want to read the actual language, you can read the language of 2.1. It's just two, it's two fairly short paragraphs. You want yeah. to do that? Yeah, and I think it's cool to do this because uh, like everybody <laughs> thinks it's really easy to define the terms that we use when we're talking about liberty until you say, okay, go do it. And then you find it's actually really complicated to make this lossy thought compression algorithm that is language spit out consistent principles. And and I think he did a pretty good job here in codifying uh, 2.1 defines aggression, property, and contract. Aggression is the use, trespass against, or invasion of the borders of another person's owned resource, property, without the owner's consent or the threat thereof. We oppose all acts of aggression as illegitimate and unjust, whether committed by private actors or the state. Each person is the presumptive owner of his or her body, self-ownership, which right may be forfeited only as a consequence of committing an act of aggression. Property rights in external scarce resources are determined in accordance with the principles of original appropriation or homesteading, whereby a person becomes an owner of an unowned resource by first use and transformation. Contract, whereby the owner consensually transfers ownership to another person, and rectification, which I think is the uh, same thing as tort, right? Um, I had never oh, heard No, it's the same thing as restitution. Oh, okay. Whereby an owner's property rights in certain resources are transferred to a victim of the owner's tort, trespass, or aggression to compensate the victim. Uh, do you want me to read the third paragraph? The, no, the third was already there. I just okay. added these ahead of that. So that the third just goes into specific examples. But um, so most libertarians would say aggression is the initiation of force, right? Something like that. But yep. that's not really a good definition because um, um, it, it's, it's kind of awkward. First of all, that doesn't include threats and it doesn't include fraud, at least on, on first glance. And it doesn't it, like if I walk across someone's lawn at midnight when they're sleeping, did I really initiate force? You know, it's kind of odd. I think the best way to understand it is this. Um, <clears throat> and the way, the way I worded it like this was for these reasons. Um, um, 
the word aggression like on, on its plain meaning means like when you physically hit another person like they're physically fighting right and if you say you're opposed to aggression what you mean is you're opposed to like hitting other people mm -hmm. and that's just another way of saying each person owns their body right because if i if it's impermissible for me to hit your body that means that you, you're not consenting to it. And the only reason you, I, I need your consent is if you own your body. So it's another way of saying self-ownership or body rights. So that's why I put that in there first. So every person owns their body, but that right is not unlimited for the very reason that you, you can't use it to commit aggression. In other words, someone can't initiate force or aggress against me, but they can use force against me to repel me if I'm attacking them. So when I, okay, yeah. When I, when I commit aggression, then I am forfeiting some of my rights in my body. I'm effectively giving you permission to hit my body back. Okay. So that's why I put that exception in there. But basically, self-ownership is the first property right. So aggression is the use of someone's property without their consent, and the property would be their body. And then uh, the other things that we consider property are external resources that, that were at one time unowned that came to be owned and that are owned by someone now. So all legal disputes have to do with two or more people contesting the ownership, the right to control or use a given scarce resource, an external resource. And the way that we determine the owner is with homesteading, like who got it first, contract, like did you get it from a previous owner by contract, or was it transferred to you because someone hurt you, like they committed a tort against you, so that'd be rectification. So those three things, those three rules are the only ways um, that you can come to own property. You either the first one to get it, or you buy it from someone who had it, or they have to give it to you to pay you back for some damage they did, they did to you. That's the only way to get ownership of something. Um, and this way of putting it has several, several implications. Number one, it implies anarchy because um, <laughs> the state violates these rules when it taxes us or or outlaws competition, right, by, by monopolizing its services. Um, it also implies intellectual property is not legitimate because um, intellectual property isn't, doesn't come about through any of these things here. Uh, in other words, intellectual property gives the owner of the copyright or the patent the right to stop you from using your property as you see fit, which violates your property rights. Um, it also rules out um, voluntary slavery because the contract part only applies to external resources, not to your body. Your body, you can only use, you can only lose rights in your body when you commit aggression. So that compact way of putting it has several implications, but I think it covers the whole field. Uh, and, and one thing we didn't list explicitly, I did list threats because the threat of force is also counts as initiation of force or aggression mm -hmm. because it gives, it gives the person um receiving the threat the right to respond right so if, if someone has a right to respond then what they're responding to has to be aggression um but i didn't call out fraud specifically because fraud is implied um that is a prohib prohibition against fraud mm -hmm. because um the word consent is in there uh the use of uh, someone's resource that they own has to be with their consent and yep. fraud is a way of vitiating consent. You're deceiving someone about the nature of what's going on, and, and the consent that they give is not really informed consent or meaningful consent. So fraud is an application of that, too. The only I, – I, no, I'm gonna, I, don't want, I was about to say the only nitpick I have, but not even that. It's mainly, it's mainly a question because um, you were the one that convinced me of uh, first use as the um, only necessary uh, homesteading action. Like, get there first and make first use of it. Um, in here you say first use and transformation. So I just wanted to check 
and see if uh, if you meant something additional with the word transformation, or if that's kind of superfluous. Like, what if you just got there and used it first, but didn't transform it in some way? Um, transform it, sort of imp uh, implies um, that you have to use it in a way that establishes some kind of publicly visible link between you and the resource. Um, uh, so that other people can see that there's property borders or property boundaries. There has to be a visible, Hoppe calls it intersubjectively ascertainable. We can just call it objective. There has to be an objective, uh, provable link between you and the resource. So there has to be some stamp of your of your connection to it. If you just walk across it and leave, then no one even knows you were there. You And if you claim it later, it's like a mere verbal declaration. So transform just means doing something with it that uh, that separates it out from other things so people can tell that now this is owned. It, it it basically means putting up a fence around it. It means establishing your ownership in, in a visible way. Transforming I, I, is one way of doing that. I, like, I really, if I take a if, if, go go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that I think the word transformation bothers me because it summons back in the mix that whole mix your labor with it labor of theory of value. Your labor has something magical. You know, you doing something to the property makes a difference. Whereas, uh, like uh, the the example I use when I'm talking about it is like a worm farm. You know, you 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 homestead a piece of property, or you try you wish to homestead a piece of property that has a bunch of worms underground. Uh, and if you disturb the ground in any way, if you modify or transform the property in any way, you might make the property less efficacious as a worm farm. So really, you're just going to say, "Hey, this is my property. I got here first, and I'm Correct. using it as a worm farm." Um, and then, Correct. I guess if somebody uh, challenges you, go ahead. I would say you, you, but you need to you need to somehow establish a publicly visible uh, connection between you and the worm form. Like you, maybe you put a fence around it, um, mm. or or something. You have to, so you have to do something. Um, uh, the the word transform is. I, I think of it as a sub. If I was writing a treatise, I would give different examples and have footnotes and nuances. But um, the problem with the mixing your labor thing, I think Locke is in a way right that when you mix your labor with an unknown resource. And all he meant by that was you you transform it or you do something with it, um, you start using it basically in a, in a certain way. Um, the problem with his argument is that he assumes that the reason it works is because you own your labor. So it's kind of a mystical argument, um, and, and it leads to the IP idea actually. You don't need to say you own your labor in order to say that mixing your labor with something is one way of homesteading it. In other words, mixing your labor with something is a way of embordering it. I mean, the general concept is what Hoppe writes about. It's called embordering. It's basically establishing a publicly visible link between yourself and the resource. And that depends upon the nature of the resource, too. You know, cows are cows are, are homesteaded by branding them because they, ro they roam around. Um, land is land is uh, transformed in a, in a certain way. Other things are, 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 are homesteaded by possession, you know, like a, a stick or something like that. So... This is interesting. I've 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 gone a, I've gone for years now without saying that you needed to separate it from nature. And I guess we're we this is a this is not the same thing you're talking about. And bordering, I think, is the perfect word actually um, to to establish borders. And border, I like that. I'm gonna have to continue thinking about that. The and I'd like to get your answer on um, the most common criticism I get when I talk about first use as the as the prime homesteading uh, rule mm -hmm. um, is uh, well. Um, what constitutes use because you know you could sit on the top of a hill in a lawn chair and be like oh, i'm using all of this land with my eyes to enjoy mm -hmm. the view for example uh, therefore i have made first use of all of these vast tracts of land therefore i have now homesteaded it all uh, what do you say to that 
Yeah, that's uh, I th I think um, <laughs> this is not like an a priori thing you can come up with from your armchair. This has to come from the the, the kind of negotiation between people in reality. Um, but you have to remember that anytime there's a dispute over a resource, then that dispute is over a particular type of use of the resource. So two people are both are, when they have a conflict over a resource, it's going to be a conflict over a certain type of use, and that's going to depend upon the way that people want to use it and the nature of the resource itself. So the very nature of of any dispute, like when two people come into court to argue who gets the thing, the very thing that they're fighting about helps to define the type of use appropriate for that thing that then would be the standard for who homesteaded or how was it homesteaded. So it's sort of a, um, now in, in particular cases, you can give an answer, but I think that as a practical matter, yeah, you can't just observe something and claim it. You have to actually somehow embroider it. Now, l let's say you put up a fence across, uh, you know, a thousand square miles. Um, <clears throat> you could claim that you, you've, you've embroidered it, but if you're not actually using the whole thing productively, then you're not going to be able to make enough income from that property to have resources to go around policing it all the time. So eventually people are going to start squatting on it and they're going to gain ownership of it by acquisitive prescription or statute of limitations, which is another way of saying that I've effectively abandoned it. Like if someone squats on a corner of my property 100 miles away and I never tell them anything and 100 years later, they're, they're, they have a thriving town there, I've given up ownership of it. So unless I'm actually using this thing productively, it's, it's impossible to homestead too much because you just, you're going to lose ownership of it at a, at a certain time to, to squatters, basically. There's, there's so many different things happening here. So what was the, what was the thing you said right before abandonment? It was two words I'd never heard. You said if, if somebody is squatting on the land, um, oh, um, acquisitive like, prescription, acquisitive prescription. Can you tell me what that that's means? a civil law term? It's it's usually called statute of limitations in the common law. Acquisitive means to acquire prescription means the time limit has run out. Okay. Uh, now I have previously held up until this moment. Um, and I guess I'll defend that position that, that there is no such thing as sort of like abandonment as long as the person, the owner is alive, um, unless they, um, unless they take positive action to abandon something like this, this sort of, um, <clears throat> nascent or, uh, late, what's the word I'm looking for? This sort of like, uh, abandonment by default. Um, I, I mm -hmm. don't think it's a subjective thing that you can't really prove. Like if I, if I have a watch and I put it down and I walk away, that's in no way really communicating, um, uh, definitely that I've abandoned that piece of property. I could have just wanted to leave it there and walk away for a month. Um, what do you what do you say about this abandonment stuff? Because right it's now a, it's a tricky issue. Um, so I, I guess I'm in between you and the mutualists, right? So the mutualists think that you abandon things as soon as you step off the property. Like it's impossible to have what do they call it? Distant ownership or remote? Yeah, absentee ownership or something. Absentee. Yeah. Um, I don't agree with that at all because I do think that if you do not intend to abandon something. Um, then you don't abandon it because ownership is the union of the intention to own with with possession. That's the that's how that's how ownership happens. That's what that's what homesteading is. That's what distinguishes you have to mean to own something. Mean. Yeah, you can't accidentally you to, own something, right? Well, that's why you can sell things is because you you, you give up your intent to keep it at, under your ownership mm -hmm. and you transfer it to someone else. So it's possible to give up your. It's possible to lose ownership by losing the the ingredient of intent to own. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing is property rights has an inherently communicative aspect because th just the very notion of consent implies the ability for people to communicate. 
because you have to communicate whether you grant permission or deny permission for someone to use your resource, right? Or whether you sell it to them or, or, or not. So communication is inherent, language and communication or or, 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 or have to be part of the of the understanding of property rights. Um, we have to presuppose that people can communicate, but language is always contextual. And just like contracts can never cover every, um, every specificity, there always has to be uh, gap filler rules or what we call suppletive provisions or default provisions um, or tacit provisions or implicit understandings that fill in the gaps when language is unclear or we're not sure. So, you know, you have things like good faith, the reasonable man standard, things like that. So, uh, what, so, so for example, if, um, if, um, if I loan you my car, I just hand you the keys just because of our previous history and uh, customs and traditions in our community. I didn't say I'm giving you the car forever, but I didn't say I wasn't, I didn't, I was silent. So what's the reasonable person going to understand what was, what was my communication that was not expressly stated? We have to we have to make some assumptions about language and and, and people's uh, interactions with each other, and we would say no, I'm just loaning it to you temporarily, and you have to give it back to me when I when I ask for it back. Um, if you kiss a girl without her permission, then that's assault and battery. Well, it's battery, um, but if she gives you permission, it's not it's not assault and battery. So if you're dating a girl and on your fifth date you you've kissed her every time you walk her to her door, and on the fifth date you walk her to her door and you give her a kiss. You can assume that she consents because she consented the last four times and she didn't say anything different, right? So, so context matters and interpretation of, 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 of unwritten sort of communication matters. And I think that plays into the abandonment issue. So if I have um, a, a, a farm and I explicitly abandon it, I tell everyone in town, I'm leaving town. I don't want this thing anymore. It's unowned. Okay, I've abandoned it by making my intentions expressly clear. Right? You, you with me so far? Yeah, I am. Yep. So, but what if I leave town and no one knows where I've gone and it's 30 years later and it's growing up with weeds and no one even knows if I'm still alive. So at a certain point in time, people are going to assume, and, and what if someone moves in and they start using it and they're there for another generation? Um, they're going to assume that someone who didn't want to abandon it would have come back and, and kicked the person out, right? That's why the statute. That's why the acquisitive prescription usually says you lose you lose your land um, if someone squats on it and you don't complain for like years, fifteen years, thirty years depends upon on the on the state or the jurisdiction, because and that's different than what the mutualists say. Like so, the mutualists say that you you abandon it even if you say you're not abandoning it. Yeah. All we're doing with the with the acquisitive prescription assumption is saying, look, we don't know what the guy wanted to do because he didn't say, so we have to make a reasonable guess. Did he really intend to abandon or not? And so the problem is his is his fault for not being clear. So when someone is not clear, the people left remaining to decide what to do with the property have no choice but to try to make a reasonable guess at what was really meant. So I do think that you could have – I think you can assume abandonment at a certain point, especially I, like – again, if, if you're like Ted Turner and you have this big ranch in Montana or whatever, and someone builds – a farm on the corner of it because they think they, they said that there's a mistake about the property line. They actually just think they own it and they build it. And, and Ted Turner doesn't say anything for, for 30 years. Then you could say that he didn't police his property and he effectively abandoned it in their favor because he 
he, he had 30 years to make the decision. It's like the abortion thing. Like if you haven't, if you haven't decided to abort by four months, okay, you've had enough time, you know, I, at a I certain don't, point. <laughs> I don't, I don't like the subjectivity that this introduces. I think I will continue defending the no abandonment thing. <laughs> so I guess it comes down to like, uh, I respect that. I respect so like, that. <laughs> so yeah, well, like, you know, in, um, in 30 years, when the owner returns to the farm and he says, Hey, that's my farm, get off. And they go to court and, and, uh, the court says, okay, well, show me, show me your, uh, right. Your highest claim to the property farmer. And he shows, you know, I don't know the original evidence or deed to the property or whatever, assume no statist, uh, deeds, whatever. And then the, the squatters or whatever you want to call them, the, 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 the people that moved in after the fact, thinking it was abandoned, um, it would be on them to prove to show proof of abandonment. Like they would have to show a document or, you know, some kind of recording or evidence that the farmer, the original owner said, okay, I abandoned this property. It's no longer mine. And then they can come in with that well, proof I, of you abandonment. Know, maybe, otherwise, maybe. otherwise they don't have the highest claim to the property, right? Well, you know, maybe the customary rules in that community would be, um, if you can't find the guy and track him down, put a notice in the newspaper and give them, you know, give them a year to respond. And if the guy finally doesn't, I mean, maybe you have to have some duty to try to find the guy, but if he's just made him, if he's not cooperating in the system, um, and by the way, another way that could solve this, you could have, uh, you could have agreements, which basically handle these things like, uh, um, uh, you know, if, if I buy land and I have to get a mortgage on it, maybe the bank like title say, insurance. Well, yeah, it'd be like a title insurance type of yeah. thing, which basically it, it says, okay. And again, when I say communication is essential, let, let me give another example. Suppose you're in a neighborhood and um, it's customary for people to walk up to their neighbor's doors and knock on them to ask them for a favor like or a question like, uh, hey, uh, do you know when the garbage comes tomorrow or do you have a – could you loan me a, a cup of sugar or something like that? Now. Yeah. When I walk up to my neighbor's house, te technically I'm using their property. So is it trespass or is it consented to? Now, I would say it's not trespass because there's an implicit understanding that the owner is granting permission because that's commonly done in the neighborhood. So unless I derogate from that by putting up a posted sign and stating the opposite to the normal customary understanding, then I, I have basically by silence agreed to consent to innocuous uses like that right yeah. now you could say something like that is true of the abandonment case like if if it's understood in a given community even if you don't personally like this rule but if, if this is what the practice that's going on if everyone says look if you don't show up here for 10 years we're going to declare this to be unowned someone's going to move in and you're going to lose it and if you know that's the rule then it's kind of on you to rebut that by you know every nine years showing up and visiting or something like that as long as he consented to that rule in the first place, but like, but also he could withdraw his consent to that rule. Like it's his property uh, to, to encroach upon it in that way would be to uh, reduce. Yeah, his you're right. That, that you're right. My, my, my solution doesn't work. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> well, by, uh, the way, by the way, you notice I didn't, I didn't put that in the, in the principles because that's too specific true. in this. So I didn't put it, I didn't put abandonment either. So that's up, that's still up to interpretation, but your argument is arguable. Um, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that, um, do you think that if some Native Americans could show that part of Manhattan was stolen from them, that they should get it back even now? Um, I could imagine a very specific scenario in which they could show a higher claim to the property, yeah. like a specific Native Me American. Me too, by the way. Yeah, and just to, just to clarify for everybody watching, because I get this a lot. 
Like it would need to be like a specific person with a specific yeah. claim to a specific Correct. section of property Correct. where they could show non-communal sort of ownership of that, of that because native Americans had commu this, this, Correct. they didn't, a lot of native American tribes didn't even have a really a concept of private ownership of property. They were nomadic Correct. and they just kind of roamed around. So that would be insufficient. So it would have to be a very specific situation, but yeah, I think you could conceive yeah, of one. Me too. Yeah. Okay. But the reason is because they didn't abandon it. They were it was basically stolen, right? They were not allowed to make a claim for it all these generations. Uh, yeah. Maybe a better example would be like the descendants of a slave who was on a plantation. Yeah. Uh and and you know, maybe the heirs of the of the white master still own it. Maybe the maybe the black slaves great great grandchildren should be able to get get that back. I, I'm not opposed to that kind of stuff at all, as long as you could show a particular enough claim, the right evidence. But the problem is old, old, old claims, evidence tends to be lost when witnesses are all dead. Yep. Um, so that's why, we, that's that's sort of the reasoning behind the statute of limitations that let it, if you don't assert your rights when they're fresh enough to be able to do justice, if you wait too long, then you've lost your right to- It can become impossible. System. Yeah. It becomes impossible and it becomes unfair to the other side because they don't they don't they some of the witnesses they might might have needed are now dead and all this kind of stuff. So there's mm -hmm. a reason that claims that become too stale or barred, you know, in the common law, this is called latches, L-A-C-H-E-S, which is sort of the time equivalent of estoppel, which is another type of equitable uh, defense you can use to prevent someone from making a claim that's unfair for them to make. Uh, again, if you wait too long to assert your rights, then it's just you've you've given you've lost your right to do it. And that's the logic behind acquisitive prescription: is that it, if someone's squatting on your property, you have thirty years to kick them out. But if you don't do it, eventually, it's too late for you to assert your rights. You've you've given up your rights. I understand you don't quite agree with it, and I don't. It's not it's not something you can prove with deductive reasoning for sure. Um, you, you said something really important early on um, that I want to highlight. Uh, you said that it's not th these property systems, these rules are not some kind of a priori uh, axiomatic thing that we can extract from the fabric of reality. Property rights are agreements between people. When we talk about having rights to property, we're talking about uh, what rights are, which are reciprocal agreements between people. And so correct. you can you can reciprocate whatever retarded property rights you want amongst people that consent in an area, let's say. But uh, but I think what we're arguing for and what we're in search of is the most consistent, the most universalizable, the least rivalrous set of property rules that we can imagine because that's and they the have whole to point. Be, and they have to be workable and practical because property is a pra is a practical solution to a real problem. And the, the problem is the problem of conflict. So for, for, the, for the group of people, which is most people, who would prefer to live in a society where um, where we can peacefully trade with each other and deal with each other rather than have physically fighting. So we, we kind of agree that we need a system of property rights, right? So then the question is, what are they? And that's what I laid out in my plank is like, those are the rules. And those are the rules that evolved on the private common law anyway, you know, uh, original appropriation and homesteading and rectification for a tort. I mean, that's that was the core of the Western private law anyway, uh, and the Roman law as well. Um, um, so like one of the one of the rules has to be self-ownership because i mean it doesn't even make sense to say you own real estate or something if you don't own yourself so that's the core thing um and then you have to be able to use things in the first place for people to survive so we have to have the ability to go out into the woods and get things that are unowned otherwise we would die mm -hmm. so whatever the rules are they have to permit original appropriation right so and if you believe in property rights at all, 
part of that is what Hoppe emphasizes is called um, um, the prior later distinction, which means it matters who has it first. Because if it doesn't matter who has it first, then there's no property rights because just because I own something now, someone else can come and take it from me, right? Yes. The very notion of property rights implies that the current user owner has a better claim than someone who comes later. So yes. if you combine that with the idea that we have to be able to use things that are unowned in the first place, combine that with pro the need for property and combine that with the prior later distinction, that means that the first person to use a resource is the owner. So that's original appropriation. And then owning it means you can abandon it. And if you can abandon it, you can give it to someone. That's what this con contract comes from the right to use it and the right to abandon it. And then okay. the, the security of property rights, meaning you can't, you can't trespass against someone's property without their permission, means that if someone does, they have to owe you compensation. So that's the third way. So it all sort of flows from the basic practical need for, 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 for conflict avoidance mechanisms. Okay, so uh, we have a person over on Odyssey that uh, has just been commenting up a storm. I can't catch up with all your comments. Uh, it sounds like you have some fundamental disagreements with uh, myself and Kinsella on the conception of property. Um, you're welcome to hit us up on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is at notgovernor. Um, Stefan, your Twitter is, what's your Twitter? NS Kinsella. NS Kinsella, sorry, I didn't have that ready. Uh, yeah, so you know, send us a send us a tweet, and maybe we can have a back and forth. And if we find that there's some actual meaty disagreements, then we can definitely have uh, have the discussion on stream. Uh, I have a couple super chats here, but let me make this uh, last call for questions or challenges in the comments. Uh, you know, write question in all caps and give me your question, and, and we'll get to it. Uh, Zeku, thank you for the five dollars super chat. He says, "Woo, freedom." And Phobes donated five dollars. Thank you for that. He says no definition of aggression makes sense. The LP was run by woke commie redacteds until the Mises crew took over. What are your <laughs> thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on Mises on the Mises guys? Me on the yeah. Mises caucus? Yeah. Well, I, I'm a member. I thought it was great. I think. Uh, 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 look, I've never been an, a political activist. Um, I, I think politics is futile. <laughs> I still do, but I did join the party about four years ago because um, I just thought I got tired of them not running libertarians and not having a clear libertarian message. I figure if they're going to run, because all my friends think liber the libertarian party is what libertarianism is, right? Mm -hmm. So I just want them to have a consistent libertarian message and good libertarian articulate libertarian candidate that's all i don't i don't think we're going to win the presidency or anything um but i i do want them and i think i think it can be a good way to spread our ideas i mean a lot of people learn about it from that so that was my goal and i do think the mises caucus um um is solid on that they're 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 austrian influence they're in they're 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 they're, they're principled they're anti-war they're anti-covid lockdown um so i think it's a it's it's been a great development I agree completely uh, on all counts. I think the LP is, uh, as a political entity, is a big waste of time. It might even be a honeypot that wastes a lot of uh, good-meaning, well-intentioned activists' time. Uh, but man, has the messaging been garbage for the last ten years! And holy shit, has the like the past few months now that now that the Mises has taken over, especially on Twitter. Oh, they're on fire! And finally, if nothing else. They're saying the right things to the people that need to hear it. So uh, I, I'm excited about that. Okay, so we, we did get a few questions here. Um, question, when somebody watches the pirated copy and tells their friends that might pay for it, that is free marketing, right? Yeah, that's one, that's one argument a lot of people have made is that piracy actually often helps the uh, producer. 
Um, but that's sort of a utilitarian justification and, and it's contingent. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's not always the case. I do think piracy for, for like for music and for movies probably does reduce their sales um, to some degree. Um, j just like, you know, um, uh, musicians don't make as much money now as they used to from CD sales. We, you know, back in the golden era of CDs, um, they were making so much money because there was only one business model and it was not easy to duplicate. But now we have streaming and MP3 files that that's, that's faded away. That's because of technology and the internet. Um, so, so business models change over time as technology changes. All right, next question. If we insert practicality into a non-arbitrary foundation, wouldn't that just be inserting some kind of subjective gobbledygook that promotes conflict rather than reducing it? I guess we're going back to the property. If we insert practicality into non-arbitrary foundation, wouldn't that just be inserting some kind of subjective gobbledygook that promotes conflict rather than reducing it? I guess well, I mean, I, I think you can actually make a pretty good, um, I, I'm a, um, I follow Hans Hermann Hoppe's argumentation ethics. I think that's actually the, the, the philosophical way to justify and defend rights. And when I talk about practicality, I'm more describing the system that has emerged and explaining why it emerges. But I do think that you can make actual principled arguments for like the rules that we put in the platform. I think you could defend each one of those as I just did. Um, but just admitting that property solves a practical problem, uh, it just means we're, we're, we have human bodies and we live in a world where there's, you know, we need things to survive. We need scarce resources to act. Um, I don't think that's devolving into consequentialism or, or, or utilitarianism or, or, or unprincipled thinking. All right. Last question. If someone without an apparent heir dies, would the property then be up for homestead? I mean, I would say yes. And I uh, yes, although it's it's it, those cases are very rare because the law usually has uh, different layers of presumptions of who would inherit. But under by the way, under current law, do you know, do you know what happens if that happens? Uh, the government the taxes a certain percentage of it, right? Oh, oh, no, no, like no, if no, there no, is no, no apparent if, heir, yeah. If there's no heir, then the government gets it. It's called a sheet, E S C H E A T. So, the government is the backup. Um, in the government's conception, there can be no no unowned land. It's impossible to have unowned land in the government's conception. That's Either a shitty deal. Some, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would say yes. It's up. It's up for grabs uh, as soon as it has no owner, and it has no owner if you die with no heir. I'll see myself out for that dad joke. <laughs> oh, what was it? Sorry, what was it? I said, I said that's a sheety deal. <laughs> Get uh, uh, you said it's a sheet, and <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank I you be for my dad. My da my dad jokes shirt right now, which says oh, uh, that's bad. My shirt says, uh, "I like telling dad jokes." Sometimes he laughs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, um, Mr. Catella, as always, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for coming on today. Is there anything else you'd like to say or you want to, can you direct people to your website? Just stephenkinsella.com. There you go. All right. Thanks everybody for watching until next time.